You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled Good Men. Hello, my radio friends. Glad you've joined me again to hear more words of wisdom from that most treasured of all books, the Bible. If you live by what the Bible has to say, you will do well. One of the books of the Old Testament is Proverbs, a book of wisdom. I have a fairly large volume in my library that contains many other proverbs and wise sayings. Personally, I find much pleasure in reading this book, and I've referred to it many times. Proverbs, that is, wise sayings, are used in our normal speech much more often than we realise, and today I want to share one of these with you. In recent times, the editors of the Oxford Dictionary conducted a poll to find out the most popular proverb. It is something quoted by Steve Irwin, the crocodile hunter, known across Australia for his love for Australian fauna. Steve lost his life in 2006 when poisoned by a stingray. Steve must have heard this proverb, as he was not the first to quote it. The originator of the proverb is probably Edmund Burke, an Irish politician who lived in the 1700s. Well, what is it? This is what it says. Evil triumphs when good men stand and do nothing. This proverb is not found in the Bible, but there is something quite similar. There are two verses... One is in Proverbs 29, verse 2, and it says, When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. The other one is in James 4, 17. It says this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him... It is sin. These two verses have similar but different shades of meaning, and we will consider one of them later on. But first, I want to tell you a true story. I'll give the names of the persons other names simply to protect their identities. And what I'm about to tell you is similar to what has happened many times and in many places across Australia, and for that matter, the world. The year was 1981. Here in a church in South Australia, a new family arrived. There was a husband and a wife and their three daughters all aged under 10. They'd come from interstate and seemed to be pleasant, God-fearing people. 
The father was very talented, and he was an extremely good musician. It was not very long before the family integrated and was well accepted by the other church members. They made friends, and all seemed to be well. About a year after their arrival, Calvin, the father, the husband, proposed that a children's club be started in the church, where the children would be taught survival skills, Bible lessons, marching drill, and they'd be given an opportunity to study various subjects, and if satisfactorily completing certain projects, would be given appropriate awards. Other church communities had similar clubs operating in their churches. And so the church board members, in consultation with parents of children between 10 and 14 years of age, agreed to have the children's club operate in that church. Calvin had had previous experience in running such clubs and it seemed appropriate to appoint him as club leader. A number of assistants and helpers were chosen and children were invited to join. There was no question that Calvin was a good leader and the club ran smoothly. The children enjoyed the activities especially the campouts, which normally took place on weekends several times each year. Now, fast forward a few years. Calvin was appointed to take up a job in another state, and others took over the leadership of the club, and the club continued to thrive. One day, Gerald now 16, and who had been one of the children in the club, broke his silence to his parents about something that had gone on when Calvin was the club leader. It seemed that Calvin had a special interest in teenage boys and that he had sexually abused several boys under his care, including Gerald. In short, Calvin was a pedophile and had manipulated people and circumstances in order organising the club to suit his aberrant behaviour. After Gerald revealed what he had bottled up for those years, the authorities were informed and the police began their investigations. Gerald's parents were shocked at what Gerald had told them, and could hardly believe that Calvin would be guilty of sexually interfering with two of their sons. Eventually, Calvin was taken into custody. He was tried in the criminal court and was sentenced to eight years' imprisonment with a parole period of four and a half years. It was a big surprise to learn that Calvin had interfered with at least 20 other boys before he came to South Australia. But the biggest surprise was that Calvin's wife, Charlotte, 
knew all along that her husband was a pedophile and she said nothing. Had she warned people that her husband was a danger to children, would have prevented so much psychological damage and heartache that followed in the wake of Calvin's unholy antisocial behaviour. Some of you listening to my voice today can identify with what I've just told you. Maybe you yourself have been a victim of sexual abuse and or it is highly likely that you know someone who's been abused that way. You see, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. In the story I just related, evil prospered because a good woman said nothing. So what do you think God thinks when he sees people who know when evil things are happening but their lips remain sealed? What would God have thought about what happened in New York when a woman was attacked in the street at night and when at least 70, that's seven zero, seventy people peered through their windows and saw what happened, but not a single one of them did anything to help the woman? The answer is found in that Bible verse I read to you earlier in James 4.17. It says, Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. This is a sobering thought. When one sins deliberately, that is known as a sin of commission. When one knows what should be done and does not do it, that's called a sin of omission. So which is worse, a sin of commission or a sin of omission? And to be honest, I don't really know, except that sin is sin and needs forgiveness. But there is another problem that must not be overlooked. Many people know what God's law, the Ten Commandments, say but they seem to be quite comfortable ignoring at least one of those commandments, particularly the fourth one, which quite clearly points out that the day of worship is the seventh day of the week, Saturday, and not the first day of the week, Sunday. Others have the audacity to say that the commandments were abolished when Jesus was crucified, and so therefore ignore any responsibility to keep the Sabbath or any of the other commandments for that matter. Others have said that the special day of worship has been changed to Sunday, the first day of the week, because Christ rose from the dead on Sunday. As good as that reason might be, it is in contravention of the explicit command to remember the seventh day to keep it holy. 
If you're one of those people who knows that you should be keeping the seventh-day Sabbath and you're not doing it, then according to what James 4.17 says, you're committing sin. The Apostle James makes this point abundantly clear in chapter 2 and verses 10 and 11. He says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. The example James gives is about sin of both commission and of omission. The person who commits murder acts deliberately, a sin of commission. At the same time, if he knows what the law is about and and ignores it, he has committed a sin of omission, and in this case is guilty of double sin. If you know that you should be keeping the seventh-day Sabbath and you're not doing it, according to what I just read to you, you are committing sin. And Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12 reminds us that people are judged according to what they, that is, we, do. My dear friends, why don't you honour God completely? and not partially. Don't fall around with God. Don't take him for granted. If God has said something in his word, you should do it. You cannot hide behind the excuse that God didn't really mean what he said, or that he will turn a blind eye to your disobedience. We're going to stop for a moment, and we'll go on straight afterwards. Savior, we enter the glory land. Won't it be wonderful there? End the troubles and cares of the story land. Won't it be wonderful there? Won't it be wonderful
be wonderful there Sure that forever the Lord will be keeping us Won't it be wonderful there Won't it be wonderful there Having no burdens to bear Joyously singing with heart bells ringing oh, Won't it be wonderful there Just before the break I was talking to you about mucking around with God. We cannot take God for granted. We know he's loving God and forgives us of our sins. But if we deliberately do opposite to what he wants, then we are putting ourselves in a very invidious position. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7, seriously conveys the gravity of the decisions we make. It says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And if you're thinking to yourself, Ah, I know better than God. I can do things my way. You're deceiving yourself. Besides that, you are making a mockery of God. And then the next verse, verse 8, says, The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will receive destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap, rather, eternal life. So why am I telling you all this? Well, it's quite simple, really. If I know what is right and remain silent, that is, if I don't warn you that you're doing something wrong, then I am guilty of the sin of omission, of doing nothing and allowing wrong to flourish. The Bible gives a number of warnings and examples of what happens to people who stand by and do nothing when they should be doing something positive. In the parable of the talents, one of the servants who had been given money to care for simply dug a hole and left the money there until his master returned from his extended trip. The other servants invested the money and multiplied what they were given. When the master returned, the other servants were praised for their efforts while the lazy servant, although he'd done no wrong, was condemned. In Matthew 25, verse 26, he was called a wicked and slothful servant, and he was fired. And then verse 36 says, And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Revelation chapter 3, God's people are reprimanded for sitting on the fence, and this refers to the church of Laodicea. In verses 15 to 17, Jesus says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. 
So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And then there was the fig tree that Jesus cursed because it had no fruit. That tree serves as an object lesson to people who produce no good deeds. You can read about the fig tree and the people who sit on the fence in Matthew chapter 21, chapter 3 verse 10 and John 15 verse 2. So what should one do? The answer is found in James 1.27. It says this, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself by being polluted by the world. There are two issues outlined in this verse. The first issue is that people who God approves of will not be untouched by the needs of the poor the abused, the oppressed, the lonely, the needy, the disenfranchised, and similar. God approves of people who get in there and do something to help the less fortunate. The second issue is that God's people must remain unpolluted by the world. They will be righteous, obedient, and holy, Morally, they are to be unstained, and they will do what God commands. But doing good works, although it's praiseworthy, is not enough. On the other hand, being morally blameless is not enough either. The two aspects of good works and being righteous must go hand in hand. James has written about this also. It is something that requires serious thought. In chapter 2 and verses 14 to 17 we're told, What good is it, my brothers, if a man has faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not if an, if it's not accomplished sorry, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, evil triumphs when good men stand and do nothing. In your own life, how is it with you? Are you making a stand for God to obey him and do what he wants and not just what you want? Are you prepared to take God at his word to keep those blessed commandments that he gave? Or have you put another interpretation on them to suit yourself. Has the Holy Spirit been working in you to make you aware of the plights and difficulties 
that others experience and moved you to do something about it. If so, at the second coming of Jesus, you can expect to hear that beautiful invitation, Come, you blessed of my Father, take the inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I hope to hear those words, and I hope you hear them too. So, until next time, this is Len signing off and wishing you blessings, plus the courage to take the steps so that you will be pleasing to God.